summary of the big story is a four-act play, pretty simple. Uh, I keep meaning to bring a diagram to illustrate this for you, and I haven't done it. I'll do it one day. That God has created everything beautiful. That's the first two chapters of the book, the big book. And, and then pretty quickly things go awry because a man who was the linchpin of God's creation, who was supposed to bless it and make it flourish, well, when the, when the individual that's supposed to make it flourish becomes corrupt, everything gets corrupted. So we have the fall and the ruin of everything. And God, instead of washing his hands of everything, sets about trying to restore it. And makes a promise early on that he's going to do this. And what we have in the Old New Testament are the unfolding of God's promise, the plan. And the plan simply, thus far, is a man and the people around him. And we're learning about the man as we go along. Last week we learned that he's a royal son. He's a king that we're supposed to expect, one who will come. One who's the people's champ, one who's uh, well qualified, one who's righteous and good and brings blessings to the nations. Well, uh, this happens, Isaiah 52, where we are today, uh, sort of at the end of the Old Testament. Things are really a mess uh, for the people, God's people. Uh, they're about to be destroyed, carried off into exile because they've not done their part uh, with God. And, but God is still optimistic about his plan. And uh, what he's giving us in this chapter is uh, further clarity of who this person is, this man we're supposed to expect, who's going to come and make things right. And, and this, this is something of a revelation. Uh, it's almost as though God has painted through Isaiah a grand picture, a portrait of this person that's going to come, who he calls a servant. And this is the unveiling. In fact, the very first word is behold. Behold. It's almost like a master painter having worked on it. We've all gathered to see it. He's about to jerk the cover off for us all to see. And when he does, we all stare at it. Isaiah 53 says, and we look away. It's not just that we turn and say, that's not what I was expecting. It's, it's more that we, we look away and say, what on earth is that? That's what Isaiah says everyone's reaction is to God's servant. What on earth is that? What happened? Are you kidding me? Is this what it's really like? And it raises the question, what on earth is God's plan for this man? I forgot to mention this. Uh, it's Q&A day, meaning you get to ask me questions after this. So uh, the way this works is if a question occurs to you while I'm talking or afterwards, simply text me. Like that. I'll answer it later if I can, if I want to. I'll try. All right, so uh, Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, 12. I'm reading poetry to you. Starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which was has not been told to them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a dry root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. All right, let's pray. Lord God, in our weariness, uh, our mid-semester weariness and dullness, not just of mind and body, but of spirit, we pray that you would come and show us yourself, your love, your your greatness, and that you would move us. Not just move us for the sake of moving us, but move us closer to you. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, what's the, uh, this is a serious question, what's the worst, I hate to do this to you, what's the worst or ugliest person you've ever seen in your life? It's not a funny question. It, it could be the situation uh, of behavior, like perhaps they weren't an ugly person, but in that moment you've never seen an uglier person because of what they were doing. Or perhaps it could be something physical. All right, don't you think about it too long. It's probably pretty unpleasant. Uh, for me, it didn't take long for me to remember. And it's, uh, it's not pleasant to talk about. Um, but I'll do it anyway. Uh, by the way, why are like disgusting smells sort of funny to talk about, but disgusting sights aren't? Just wondering. Um, we, we could talk about like disgusting smells and probably think it was funny. This is not funny when we talk about someone... Disgusting, looking bad. In 1995, I was in Kenya. I was walking on the streets in Nairobi, and uh, I'd seen many hard things over my two weeks there. Sick children, dangerous situations, you name it. Uh, But in the streets of Kenya, it was different. The thing to get used to was people constantly asking me for money. I didn't have any. I was a college student. Um, And I was overwhelmed by everyone needing money. Uh, And then I heard a voice from, like, way down there somewhere asking for money, and I looked down expecting a child, and what I saw was a human, it was a human, uh, for sure, but uh, only a head and a torso. No legs, no arms, a human, shortened, cut, down, broken, begging for money. What in the world do you do with that? Well, one thing's for sure, you never forget it. 
what you do is you look away. You look away. And Isaiah here invites us to look at something. Behold, look! And it starts out like it's going to be good. I mean, the first couple of verses, my servant shall act wisely, he'll be lifted up, he'll be exalted, and it finishes that way. And you look, and you think, what am I looking at? This is terrible. This is horrible. You, you want me to see this? Um, but he wants us to look. And we actually need to stop and see and understand what Isaiah wants us to see here, which is God's servant and God's plan and what God's up to and how it's good for us. And what we have here is simply just part of God's plan, but at the heart of this plan is a righteous man who suffers for others. Very simply, it's a righteous man who suffers for others. And uh, we're going to move pretty quickly and simply. This text is profound and thick, but its basic message isn't that hard. We're going to talk about the servant's suffering and his uh, substitutionary sacrifice. I'll explain that the most because it requires the most explanation. And then how it's successful. That's what we'll do. And uh, the hard part is not necessarily understanding it, but really looking and receiving it. So we, we see the servant, the servant suffering in this text. And uh, not only us, but everyone sees it, it seems. In, in verse 14 at the beginning, many were astonished at him. Whatever his suffering is, it seems to be public. He is on public display in his suffering. It, it's one thing to suffer in private. And if you're like me, you want to suffer in private because... I want to do everything in private. But, um, but to suffer publicly is not just to receive comfort. It's to be on display. And uh, that's what's happening here. They see his sufferings play out. And uh, as a result of that, they actually despise and reject him. You see that in verse 3. He's despised and rejected by men. Those who see what's going on in his life look at his sufferings and despise him. And it's often the case that we do that too. We really do. I don't want to get too personal, but uh, when we see people suffering, it's actually very often the case where we look and simply assume, you did something, you made some decision, you got yourself here. And we look down on them and we despise them. And that's what seems to be happening here. So his suffering is, is uh, public, but in some way, this text is saying that his suffering is mine. His suffering is mine. Verses 3 and 4. He's despised and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. That means he knows sorrow and grief. He knows it experientially. Um, but whose grief and sorrow is it? Verse 4, he's borne our sorrows, carried our griefs. It's not his. It's ours. Somehow this servant comes into the situation in such a way that he walks with us in our sorrows and suffering and bears them himself. He takes it upon himself. It's very interesting. He's taking my sorrows, my griefs. Actually, the text will go on to say, the things that cause my sorrows and griefs, my sins, my stubbornness, my foolishness, my lack of wisdom. He's bearing those and all the while, while he's bearing those, I'm looking at him, struggling with those, and saying, poor soul. And he also suffers in this, that we don't understand what's going on. He's identifying with us, he's bearing our sorrows and griefs, and we're looking at him, verses 4 and 5, thinking, verse 4, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. I see this person carrying grief and sorrow suffering. Bad things are happening to him over and over, and I'm thinking, 
what did you do to deserve this? This is terrible. What, what did you do? God must really be angry with you. Uh, I see this all the time in my wife's community in which she grew up. Partly her culture. Um, the Russian culture. They're very superstitious. But whenever there's a great tragedy in a family, immediately people begin to ask. They don't say it in public. They begin to ask, who did this? Who's responsible for this? And not like who out there did it, but like who in the family sinned in such a grievous way that God would punish you like this? It's always someone's fault. And that's sort of what's going on here. This servant is suffering. And people say, God must really hate you. What did you do to deserve this? But it's our transgressions, it says in verse 5. He's wounded for our transgressions, our iniquities. We, we think he's being punished because of what he's done. He's actually suffering like this because of what we've done. That's a grand misunderstanding. And the suffering goes on. The suffering is physical in verse 5. He's wounded, he's crushed, he's beaten. And it's, uh, it ends with this gross miscarriage of justice. In verse 8, to make it clear, by oppression and judgment, he's taken away, cut off out of the land of the living. So, you know, it's a very poetic way of saying, he goes to trial as a just man who's innocent, and he receives, well, unjust condemnation. And he's, he's killed. He's judiciously murdered. It's a very poetic way of saying, he doesn't get justice. Instead, he's murdered as an innocent man. That is the summary of this servant's suffering. It's pretty profound. It's terrible. And um, a, a poet a couple hundred years ago, a guy named George Herbert, that said poets when he fell asleep. Wake back up. Uh, a poet named George Herbert, who was a wonderful poet, wrote this poem years ago called, of course he wrote a poem, it's a poet, uh, The Sacrifice. And in it, he, uh, he asked this question, uh, 60 times. I'll just read one stanza of it. Oh, all ye who pass by, whose eyes and mind to worldly things are sharp, but to me blind, to me who took eyes that I might you find, was ever grief like mine. So here the suffering servant saying, you, you see me in my suffering with your eyes. Um, your, your eyes are sharp to everything in the world, but you barely see me. And I came to save you. Was ever grief like mine? And, and Herbert goes on 60 times to ask that question. Was ever grief like mine? What about this way I suffered? Was ever grief like mine? What about this way I suffered? Was ever grief like mine? And the answer is, no, of course not. Never was grief like his. But, uh, you know, real quick. Why should I keep looking? This is a terrible story. It's a terrible tragedy. Why do I want to see this person suffering? Uh, you know, for a couple of different reasons. One, terrible things happen all the time. Terrible miscarriages of justice happen all the time. We live in a country where the death penalty is being suspended in many states, rightly, because we can't do it rightly. Uh, there's just miscarriage of justice regularly, and uh, you know, it's. It's true that uh, he suffers for others, but frankly, people that love people suffer for others all the time. It just happens. So why should I care? Why should I keep looking? What makes this guy any different? And what makes him different is what he does next, this substitutionary sacrifice. Those are like big, heavy theological words. So I'll make it really simple. 
who is this guy and what's he do that's so important? And this text presents uh, the servant as a priest. A priest. People sometimes think I'm a priest. It's really funny. I'm not a priest. Like I said last week. There you go, right there. I'm not a priest. That's a kid. Um, but uh, this guy's a priest. And he does the work of a priest. We see it in verse 15, this uh, verse right away at the beginning. So shall he sprinkle many nations. That's also not a word we use very often. Sprinkle. What does that mean? Like some cheerleader thing? Sprinkles. <laughs> yeah, sprinkle the nations. <laughs> like big blimp across the world, sprinkles across the nations. Uh, this is a very technical term for what a priest would do to make things clean, to make things right. He would uh, sprinkle them with blood. Uh, pretty gross, perhaps, in your mind. Pretty out there, sprinkling of blood to make things clean. We'll circle back to that in a moment. This is a very technical word for what a priest would do. What priests did was they offered sacrifices. They offered sacrifices. They offered sacrifices that you would bring. You did something you knew was wrong. And to make yourself right with God, you would bring a sacrifice to me at the temple. As a priest, I would sacrifice it for you. Tell you about God, His love, and His forgiveness, and you would go home knowing that God had received the sacrifice and was pleased with you. So this guy's a priest. Only he, he goes off the job description completely in verse ten because he does something that no priest ever does anytime, anywhere, ever. Verse ten, second stanza there: When his soul makes an offering for sin, it's a it's a really strange phrase. And uh, it's this really strange way of speaking. It's it's like saying you're washing your hands. You are washing yourself. What this verse is saying is, when his soul makes an offering for sin, he's saying, when his soul offers itself as an offering. He's offering himself as an offering. And if that doesn't make it clear, then verse 12, about halfway down, because he poured out his soul to death. It's a priest that offers himself as a sacrifice. You don't do that. No priest does that. No priest ever did that. Uh, No priest was ever asked to do that. But this one does. He willingly does it. And uh, it does what sacrifices do in verses 11 and 12. In verse 11, he, let's see, out of the anguish of his soul, he'll see and be satisfied. Skip down, where is it? Uh, He shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he, uh, he's numbered with the transgressors. He bears the sin of many. Uh, this is what a sacrifice does. It takes the sin and the guilt and the shame, the iniquity, and takes it away. It takes it away from you who offer it. it. takes it away, and God puts the punishment on that, and you go free. And this servant does that himself. He offers himself as a sacrifice as a sacrifice and a substitute for you. A substitute. This is verses 4 and 5 again. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. We think he deserved our punishment. No, we just think he deserves punishment. Uh, But verse 5 makes it really clear. Here's how the substitute works. He takes your place. You deserve your punishment for your sin. And what do you get instead? He's wounded, and uh, you go free. You transgress, he gets wounded. You sin, he gets crushed. Uh, He gets chastised, that is, punished by God. You get peace. He gets whipped and beaten. You get healed. He gets death. You get life. It's a 
a pretty profound sacrifice. It's a pretty profound substitute. Everything you deserve, he takes on himself. Everything that he is, you get. He's righteous, you get his righteousness. Uh, he's living, you get his life. You deserve death, he takes it himself. It's a profound substitute. Um, you may be wondering, why, why does it have to be like this? That would be a great question to ask, by the way, in the Q&A time. Why is it going to be like this? And um, there's a scene a number of years ago in this movie, when you were small children, uh, called 13 Conversations About One Thing. Anyone seen that movie? I didn't think so. How sad. <sighs> I'm not judging you. I'm judging myself being old. Anyway, uh, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. And uh, in it, there's one character in particular named Troy. Troy is a big shot lawyer, overconfident prosecutor played by Matthew McConaughey. And uh, he plays that role really well, by the way. Um, and uh, life and justice are very simple for him. He's a prosecutor. You make people pay. It's very simple. And uh, it's very simple for him until one night, after he's coming home from the bar, he's been drinking, he's not drunk, he accidentally hits a young woman crossing the street. He stops, he's in a daze, he doesn't understand what happened, he was slightly injured in the accident. He gets out of the car and he looks around and he notices her on the ground. And he actually slows down, gets down on the ground, looks her in the face, moves the hair out of the way to make sure she's alive. She's dead. Seems to be dead. So he stands up, and, uh, sizes up the moment, and he notices that no one's around. No one. He notices no one's around. And he walks back to the car, he sits down, and he starts the engine, and he drives away. He goes home and covers up all the evidence. In his mind, he's a murderer, at least a man's, at least guilty of manslaughter. And he's gotten away with it. No one pins it on him at all. You would say, in the eyes of the law, he's guilty, but he's gotten away with it. And he seems to suffer no ill effects, except for this scar on his head. Got it in an accident, hit his head on the wheel. It doesn't go away for months. For months and months and months. Because every night, before he goes to bed, he goes to his sink, he takes a razor, and he cuts it open. And he bleeds. You're thinking, Why? Because even in his running away, he knew there had to be justice. There had to be blood. There had to be sacrifice. There had to be a payment. Someone had to suffer for what happened to that young girl. And he knew it was him. He knew what he deserved. And he couldn't stand up to it. So he made himself pay. Now, you don't cut yourself at night. Well, some of you might. Some of you might. But you have your own way of making yourself pay for your guilt and shame. Verse 6 tells us that we all by nature run away. We run astray. We're traitors. We do whatever we want. We're our own kings and queens. We live life according to our own purposes. If we believe there's a God, we believe He's a God while we try to do whatever we want. And um, at all the same time, we're trying to make peace with our guilt and shame. We're trying to perform enough to make God happy with us so we can do whatever we want. And when it's time to pay, we just hope it doesn't come to us and we run away. We hope it won't come back to us. And what we see here in this text is while we're running away from what we deserve, Jesus, the, the substitute, the perfect one who's innocent, says, I'll take your place. 
I'll take their place. Well, that person's doing whatever they want to, running away, I'll take their place. Well, that's usually where the whole story stops with Jesus. I, I want to make one last uh, point here. Because Isaiah wants us to see the whole story. The whole story isn't just that Jesus came to die for you. You know that. You may not believe it, but you know that. He came to die for you, to make you right. You trust in Him. He takes your sin. You get His righteousness. Um, this, this text goes one step further. Um, that, that This plan of Jesus, of God's, is a startling success. This was the plan, and it's a success. Uh, Jesus really does save his people. Verse 11, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He'll bear their iniquities. So here's how it works. He offers himself as a substitute in your place. You get his righteousness. He gets your deserved punishment. The Father sees you that way, is righteous, treats you as a son, or daughter, you go free. That's God's plan. And this verse, this text in the Bible says, that was God's plan and it worked. In the mind of the Father and of the Son, it worked. That's the way it really is. When you trust in Jesus, that's what happens. It's a success. He saves his people that way. It's also a success in this way. This suffering servant doesn't just like die a sacrifice and you never hear from him again. The text tells us he sees his success. I don't know if you notice how this thing begins and ends. At the beginning, uh, Isaiah, in verse 50, verse, uh, chapter 52, verse 13 says, My servant shall act wisely. He'll be high and lifted up. He'll be exalted. And then he talks about how he suffers, 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 dies. He could suffer more. Then dies. Suffers. I mean, the whole thing's about suffering. Except at the beginning, he's exalted. And at the end, he's exalted. In other words, what we have here is every reason to believe that somehow this suffering servant that dies as a sacrifice comes back. He comes back. Verse 11, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. Wait a minute, you died. You died. How do you get to see your offspring and prolong your days? Verse 12, uh, he gets a portion. He gets a spoil. Wait a minute. How do you get the spoil of victory when you're dead? Because he comes back. That's the point. He's the king who comes back. And this is God's successful plan. My servant shall act wisely. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Verse 10. There was a plan that the Father and the Son had to make his people right. And Jesus did it. Jesus did it. He gladly went and did it. At the heart of God's plan to make everything right is Him making us right with Him first. So that we can love each other and love Him and begin to turn this ship around in the world. And that we would be just and merciful and loving like He is. Um, and it starts with Jesus and His willingness to do what we can't do. Which is to live righteously. And then His willingness to forgive us by taking our sin. That's the heart of the plan, and that's what Jesus does for us. That's how we're made right. That's how we get a new start and a new heart and new loves. Uh, an audacious, costly love like this is beautiful, and there's like a thousand stories about this. Like The Bible tells the story the best, I think. But we love this story. We love the story of someone who willingly, out of love, goes and gives themselves 
for someone else, like sacrifices themselves. But I'm not sure anyone has told the story better in recent years than the Harry Potter stories. It just happens over and over, and every time it's like, oh, he gave himself for them again. Um, uh, and in the end of the series, uh, it's like happened a long time ago, so if this is a spoiler for you, then it's your fault. Uh, you should have read the book. You grew up on this stuff, watched it. So I'm not apologizing for you not having watched Harry Potter. Um, but Voldemort, the evil magician's returned. Um, he and the Death Eaters, his followers, are, are making a strong headway. It seems like their victory is almost inevitable. Harry, in order to save his friends, has turned himself over to Voldemort. Or actually, they're waiting for him uh, to, to come and give himself up. And they're waiting for him in the forest. And as Harry approaches wordlessly, uh, Voldemort simply says, Harry Potter, the boy who lived, has come to die. And Harry, without a word the entire time, simply closes his eyes and awaits his death. And he's blasted to death. I mean, you've seen the scene, right? It is just over. There's no fight. There's no flight. He's a willing sacrifice. Um, He awakes uh, in like a mix between a heaven and a train station. Um, And he's greeted by his friend and mentor and father-like figure, Dumbledore. And I don't know if you remember, but what were Dumbledore's first words? You know them. I can tell. No, you don't know them? His first words are, Harry, you wonderful boy. I'm not supposed to be emotional about this. You brave, brave man. Let's walk. It's, uh, I I think the reason it's emotional is because every story we've been telling for hundreds of years is a beautiful rip-off of this story. Um, This was God the Father's plan to uh, save his friends, to redeem his people. And the son knew the plan and willingly went and did it. He willingly went and did it. And I, I easily imagine uh, Jesus returning to his father and hearing something like these words, you wonderful boy, you brave man. It, it's beautiful. It's, it's wonderful. But you also need to know that he did it because he loves you. Like, it wasn't just some cold abstract plan. The father and the son did this because they loved you. And they want you to join their family because this is God's plan for how to make the world right. All right. Made it through that one. Let's pray. Father, I think uh, I thank you.